been going through the whole Bible, as all of you that have been uh, attending know, we've been going through Psalms and then Isaiah and Jeremiah, and now we're in the third of the major prophets, Ezekiel. Ezekiel has had this uh, life of having to share to the people in uh, Babylon that are Israelites. He is a priest without a temple, 900 miles from where he should be serving in uh, the temple. And tonight we see the destruction. The temple's going to fall. And he's not going to be there uh, to mourn. He's not going to be there to be able to uh, cry and mourn over the temple uh, falling. In Ezekiel chapter 24, we start out at the very end of the captivity of the Israelites as Babylon is surrounding uh, the city of Jerusalem on January 15th, during the ninth year of G King Jehoiakim's captivity, this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, write down today's date. Because on this very day, the king of Babylon is beginning his attack against Jerusalem. Then give these rebels an illustration with this message from the sovereign Lord. Put a pot on the fire and pour in some water. Fill it with choice pieces of meat, the rump and the shoulder and all the most tender cuts. Use only the best sheep from the flock and heap fuel on the fire beneath the pot. Bring the pot to a boil and cook the bones along with the meat. Now this is what the sovereign Lord says. What sorrow awaits Jerusalem, the city of murderers. She is a cooking pot whose corruption can't be cleaned out. Take the meat out in random order, for no peace is better than another. For the blood of her murders is splashed on the rocks. It isn't even spilled on the ground where the dust could cover it. So I will splash her blood on a rock for all to see an expression of my anger and vengeance against her. And so, Father, as we approach your throne tonight, as we... Approach again another hard chapter in the book of Ezekiel. The, these um, sermons, these lessons that Ezekiel has to share with an obstinate, hard-headed, stiff-necked people that don't want to hear the word of God that have rebelled against him over and over and over and over again. Rebelled against you. And it's so easy to distance ourselves from the Israelites and say, well, that's them some 2,500 years ago. And in all actuality, it's us too. So Lord, help us to examine ourselves tonight, especially as we approach communion, to understand that we are not to take it unworthily, that we're supposed to um, examine our own hearts, Father. I thank you for these, my friends, my family, those that are here, those that are online, that you would just um, convict us, uh, help us to see the uh, sins that we have committed that have separated us from you. And so, Lord, as we approach this parable, this illustration, again, another illustration that Ezekiel's had to use over and over and over and over again, but in just in a different picture. And we thank you that you are so patient, not only with the Israelites, but also with us as well. And so, Lord, I ask that you would just teach us tonight clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, amen. And amen. I, I know that uh, whether this is your first night or you've been here for a, a long time, there's been so many illustrations that uh, Ezekiel has been giving, starting all the way back in chapter 1. And you remember he had to roast, you know, uh, food, his bread over dung. He had to sleep on his right side for a certain amount of time. And then he had to sleep on his left side for another amount of time. He, he had to go through the process of pretending to dig through the wall as he was escaping the city of Jerusalem. And this is a man at the age of, of 30 that was supposed to be from the line of Aaron, a priest in the temple. 
And now he's going to be seeing the temple destroyed in a vision. We saw earlier that he actually saw the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, leaving the temple. Since the very time that King Solomon had built that beautiful gold-encrusted temple, the Spirit of God had entered that place. And now for Ezekiel to see it leave, see him leave. And Ezekiel, he's having to relate these things to the people, the captives in Babylon. And it's hard. And you remember chapter 16, chapter 23, just three weeks ago when we went through one of the most descriptive chapters on what it's like to see sin. That, that it's not just a, you know, a white lie or, or an oops or my mistake. It, it, it's something that not only grieves the heart of God, but it's compared to adultery. And in, in the most graphic sense, where Israel was being compared to a prostitute. And now we're in chapter 24 and, and the second to the last of the illustrations is this pot. This pot isn't clean. This pot is rusted. This pot is old. This pot is filled with filth. And then all of a sudden, now you're putting in these nice cuts of meat. This stew, if you will. Yeah, the pieces of these, you know, prime pieces of a sheep being put into this pot and the scum literally rising to the surface. Illustrating again what is happening in the nation of Israel. In fact, in chapter 24, verse 9, we get the rest of the story here. This is what the sovereign Lord says. What sorrow awaits Jerusalem, the city of murderers. This is the third time he said this in, in just the beginning of this chapter. Three times he calls the city of Jerusalem a city of murderers. In the previous chapter, they're compared to a prostitute, to a whore, to someone who has left their first love, literally slept around the entire town, going to the various nations and prostituting themselves out. And again, this is very, very graphic language. And now we see this cut up animal put into a dirty pot. And they're being described as the city of murderers. Verse 10, yes, heap on the wood. Let the fire roar to make the pot boil. Cook the meat with many spices and afterward burn the bones. Now set the empty pot on the coals. Heat it red hot. Burn away the filth and the corruption. Normally when you you know, clean a pot, preferably you do it before you cook the food, right? All of us know that, you know, whether we did it ourselves or someone else did it for us. But we understand the concept, the pot needs to be cleaned before you cook it, right? This is the opposite, unfortunately. All these prime cuts of beautiful mutton is put into this, this pot and they come out covered in scum and rot and rust. The comparison to the city of Jerusalem and we wonder why they're being destroyed, why the beautiful city that God uh, loved, the city of peace, the city of David, the one that was set upon the hill that was supposed to be the center of the world that all people would come to, is now about ready to be destroyed by Babylon. You remember when we were going through the book of Jeremiah, we saw the firsthand view from the eyes of Jeremiah inside the city walls, and now we see it from the perspective of Ezekiel, 900 miles away on the outside looking in. Ezekiel sees the corruption. Verse 12. But it is hopeless. The corruption can't be cleaned out. So throw it into the fire. Your impurity is your lewdness. And the corruption of your idolatry. I tried to cleanse you. But you refused. Do you understand what's happening here? That, that God has been pleading with them for literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, 
not only with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but even the minor prophets themselves, Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah, all those minor prophets that had come throughout the years, the prophets that had come like Elijah and Elisha that don't even have a book named after them. And they would come and they would weep with the people and say, repent, return to the Lord. And God was patient for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now finally God is not only bringing judgment against them, but also this judgment that describes in such a way where it is literally hopeless. Why? Because they're not willing to repent. They're not willing to listen. They are stiff-necked, hard-hearted. Into verse 13 there, it says it very, very clearly. So now you will remain in your filth until my fury against you has been satisfied. Do you know what it's like to wallow in your sin? That, that's exactly what it's being described as. That, that, that scum that is coming up to the pot, top of the, the boiling pot. That this pot that wasn't cleaned before these nice pieces were put into it. Something that would never pass inspection in any restaurant. God is saying they're remaining in their filth. This is what sin looks like. And of course, as you know, with every single uh, sermon, every single lesson, I, I'm the first one to have to, unless I know a lot of you guys know where we're going to be and a lot of you guys already read ahead and I appreciate you guys so much for doing that. But I have to examine myself. We all have to examine ourselves when we come to the scriptures. And God offers repentance. God has already given not only his son as a sacrifice on the cross for us, the remembrance of communion that we're going to be able to celebrate tonight. But if we refuse, that's on us. God never forces himself on anyone. He never forces you to repent. And so the Israelites, they have chosen to remain in their filth. This is what sin is compared to. It's filthy. It's rotten. It's something that's going to be tossed away. Verse 14, this section ends like this. I, the Lord, have spoken. The time has come and I won't hold back. I will not change my mind. I will have no pity on you. You will be judged on the basis of all your wicked actions, says the Sovereign Lord. Wow. Is that scary or what? And thank God for grace. I mean, we, we know this is 100% by grace. Uh, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us, us having the uh, privilege to be able to accept Jesus Christ into our heart. That is 100% by grace. Nothing of ourselves. I can't earn it in any way. But when I refuse the sacrifice, when I refuse the Lord offering his hand for me to come back, what am I doing to God? I'm slapping him in the face. I'm not repenting. And as it says here, just like we'll read later on at the end of this book, you will be judged on the basis of all your wicked actions. Who here wants that? Not me. Thank God for grace, by the way. And we've seen this too in the Old Testament. Grace is there offered for them. Just like Ezekiel has said many, many times in the previous chapters. Ezekiel, of course, is having to deliver these hard sermons. I don't know if you've ever, you know, uh, done something, whether it's teach a Bible study or, or maybe clean a bathroom or, or do something in the church. And, and many times, you know, and, and we see it all the time, uh, people want to be rewarded. We, 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 want, we want something for what we do for God, right? God better remember this, you know. Or, or we do it right when the pastor's walking by. 
Or, or, or we do it right when, you know, a, a group of people, especially, you know, whether it's Easter or Christmas or one of those big, huge celebrations and lots and lots of people come that you've never seen all year long. And, and whether it's the, the people that are up here, and thank God we have many, many talented people. But then, have you ever been on the Sunday after Easter? I know, I, I, I get to teach those Sundays. The, the Sunday after Christmas, yeah, it's empty. I, I, I know I'm preaching again to the choir, and I, I know that you guys online, I appreciate your faithfulness. Um, but Ezekiel is doing this not for some reward. In fact, he's going to have to suffer one of the worst things that could ever happen to a human being. He's had to eat bread roasted over dung. He's had to do these various visual lessons for the people to see things that are outside of any person's comfort zone. And now this is his reward. Chapter 24, verse 15. This is harder than chapter 23. This is, this is harder than chapter 16. Those, those chapters that weren't to be even supposed to be read aloud in public in a Jewish synagogue. And instead of getting, you know, a million bucks or a mansion or some great reward, you know, the things that we see, unfortunately, from certain people on TV, pastors that say, you deserve this if you give me a certain amount of money, whatever it is. This is Ezekiel, the priest without a temple that has literally sacrificed his entire life for the captives in Babylon. Then this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, with one blow I will take away your dearest treasure. Now if we didn't have this description, this dearest treasure, for some people, none of you guys here, I know that. None of you watching online, I know that. This might be a reward. But we know that the dearest treasure is Ezekiel's wife. Yet you must not show any sorrow at her death. Wow. Why, why is God doing this? Why, why is God being so mean to the one person that has been faithful to him, Ezekiel? You remember Isaiah, he too had to suffer a lot. Jeremiah had to go through horrendous not only isolation in a pit uh, down in the very basement of the prison itself. Isaiah had to suffer through many, many uh, torments and tortures and trials. All the prophets had to go through various uh, predicaments that the people particularly wanted to harm them in some way. Jesus refers to this, that they stoned and they killed the prophets. Men like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets themselves. Do not weep. Let there be no tears. The dearest treasure that you have, your wife, she's going to die and you can't weep. You can't cry. You can't mourn. Why would God ever do that? And again, it's another illustration. It's another sign, just like in Hosea's life. Having to marry someone whom he knew would be unfaithful to her, him and then going and buying her back. Why would God ever do that to someone? And now Ezekiel, after preaching over and over and over again for 24 uh, chapters, this priest who's supposed to be in uh, the temple itself, now having to go through these horrendous examples. And the reward... Your wife is going to die and you can't weep for her. You, you can't mourn for her. Why would God do that? Drone silently, but let there be no wailing at her grave. Do not uncover your head or 
take off your sandals, do not perform the usual rituals of, of mourning or accept any food brought to you by consoling friends. Of course, this is a Middle Eastern tradition where, where the turban would be taken off the priest's head. He would put on ashes. He would shave his beard. He would cover his face. He would mourn. And of course, mourning in a Middle Eastern culture was loud. You would even hire people to mourn loudly because the louder you mourned, it meant the louder you missed that person. But he's not allowed. You can't mourn for your dead wife. Your, your dearest treasure, the apple of your eye, the one that you love the most, you're not allowed to mourn for her. Why would God ever do this to anyone? Verse 18, it tells us, So I proclaimed this to people the next morning, and in the evening my wife died. He was faithful, again, having to preach another sermon again. A hard sermon to people that he knew would not change their minds, that would still be obstinate, hard-headed, stiff-necked. The next morning I did everything I had been told to do. And then the people asked, what does all this mean? What are you trying to tell us? If they didn't get him digging through the wall or eating bread roasted over dung or laying on his left side or laying on his right side, now they see his wife die. And he can't even cry for her. He has their attention. It's the worst thing that can happen to anyone. Losing the dearest treasure that you have. Verse 20 it tells us exactly why. So I said to them, a message came to me from the Lord. I was told to give this message to the people of Israel. As he has their, their rapt attention this is what the Sovereign Lord says, that title that is used more times in the book of Ezekiel than any other book in the entire Bible, the title of God's name and title together. Yahweh Elohim, I will defile my temple, the source of your security and pride, the place your heart delights in. What is God going to do to the temple? Destroy it. You remember if we were here during the book of Jeremiah when we were going through uh, the book of Jeremiah, literally not only the walls surrounding Jerusalem were torn down by the Babylonians, uh, but the temple, the apple of God's eye, the center of Jerusalem, the very heart of the being of the people of Israel is now destroyed. The bride of God. You see, this is why chapter 16 and chapter 23 were so important before chapter 24. Because the apple of God's eye, the dearest treasure, the people of Israel who were the, his bride, his pure bride that he found wiggling in their own blood as a baby and then raising them up and making them pure and holy had left him. Prostituted themselves off to other nations. And God having to see his dearest treasure rebel and turn away. And now having to destroy that city, that, that temple that was meant for his glory. And he's not going to weep over them. He's going to bring his judgment. And for 70 years they're going to live in captivity in Babylon. But you know what's going to happen? Because of this stretch of time, this 70 years where they're without a temple, what are they going to do first thing when they come back? Yeah, you've read Nehemiah and Ezra. The first thing they're going to do, they're going to want to rebuild the temple. 
It's not going to be as glorious. But God's going to put his spirit there again. You see, God has not only set aside the people of Israel as an example, but as we see here at the end of verse 21, your sons and daughters whom you left behind in Judah will be slaughtered by the sword. Then you will do as Ezekiel has done. Wow. You will not mourn in public or console yourselves by eating the food bought by friends. Your heads will remain covered and your sandals will not be taken off. You will not mourn or weep, but you will waste away because of your sins. The wallowing in the filth. You will groan. Among yourselves for all the evil you have done. Ezekiel is an example for you. You will do just as he has done. And when that time comes, you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. I, I don't know where, what point in your life it took to recognize God as God. God never wants us to come to this place, but unfortunately for the people of Israel, it came to the point where their temple, their city, their land is destroyed. How, how much easier would it be to, you know, and, and this is always 2020 looking back, you know, knowing that time in your life where, where, you know, God asked you to repent and instead of repenting, you actually continued on in whatever it was, a sin, an addiction, a, you know, a problem in your life, some choices that you had made. If you, you had the opportunity to go back and change that, we would love that. We would love that, right? I would love that. But none of us have that second chance until today. Do you understand? Because God's calling them again. Repent, repent, repent. Recognize me as the sovereign Lord, the one that can change the destiny of Israel. It sums it up like this in verse 25. And the Lord said to me, and, and again, you know, the, the first part of this parable, the death of his wife after having to preach this hard sermon that, you know, and, and Ezekiel being so eloquent, you know, you've, you've, those of you that have been here, those of you who've read the book of Ezekiel, the first 24 chapters are, are all these amazing illustrations, these visions, the, these personal revelations from God himself to a people that he knows aren't even going to listen. Why even prepare? Why, why even come? Why even put in the time to present this? But, but the last three verses are just for Ezekiel. Who is God talking to in the last three verses? N not to the people of Israel. Who is he talking to? Ezekiel. Then the Lord said to me, this is personal. This is just for Ezekiel. Son of man, on the day I take away their stronghold, Jerusalem, the temple, their, their joy and their glory, their heart's desire, their dearest treasure, I will also take away their sons and daughters. Oh, how scary is that? Every single ounce of their energy being put into the next generation, the temple being destroyed, the walls of Jerusalem being destroyed, hearing that their relatives that were back in Jerusalem are dying. And on that day, a survivor from Jerusalem will come to you in Babylon, go, traveling literally uh, 900 miles to deliver this news. 
and tell you what has happened. And when he arrives, your voice will suddenly return so you can talk to him. And you will be a symbol for these people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Wow. You see, this prophecy is going to be fulfilled in their midst. This prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, they will hear from survivors that arrive 900 miles away. Delivering the news of the once great wonder of Jerusalem, the apple of God's eye. His dearest treasure has been destroyed. So the first 24 chapters are, are all about Israel and Judah, the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem. And now for the next eight chapters, starting in chapter 25, God's going to reach out to the other nations, the Gentiles. Starting with the ones that are closest to Israel and then working his way out calling for them to repent as well. Just like he did with Jonah. Remember, Jonah went to the city of Nineveh, and what actually happened? It's amazing. They repented, right? Much to, you know, Jonah's chagrin. He didn't want this to happen, by the way. But, but God, you know, convicted them, and they literally repented from the top down, right? And again, God is reaching out to the surrounding nations. Now, these four nations that we're going to be able to see here in chapter uh, 25 are actually the closest nations to uh, Israel. We're going to see Ammon, Moab, Edom, and uh, Philistia. In fact, I have a, a map here. And uh, you can see it. These are the surrounding nations. Ammon and Moab, you guys remember, if you were here when we were in the book of Jeremiah and also in Isaiah, they were the sons and at the same exact time, grandsons of Lot, who were, you know, uh, Abraham's nephew. And you can go to the book of, uh, of Genesis and, and find out how his daughters had tricked him, got him drunk, and then they had sons through their, their father. Edom was the twin brother of Jacob, who was later renamed Israel. And then Philistia, uh, they are the Philistines, the ones that literally, even today, West Bank of Israel. Um, Ammon and Moab are modern-day Jordan. Edom is where Petra is at uh, today. Chapter 25, we read about these four different nations. First one's Amon. Then this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, turn and face the land of Ammon and prophesy against its people. Give the Ammonites this message from the sovereign Lord. Hear the word of the sovereign Lord because you cheered when my temple was defiled, mocked Israel in her desolation and laughed at Judah as she went away into exile. These are the descendants of the nephew of Abraham, Lot. These would be literally the second cousins of Jacob. These were relatives. And what are they doing when they hear that the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed? They cheer. They're happy. I hope we would never do that to our relatives. But in verse 4, it continues on. And in fact, it goes into even a greater detail. They mocked Israel in her desolation, laughed at Judah as she went away into exile. I will allow nomads from the eastern deserts to overrun your country. They will set up their camps among you, pitch their tents on your land. They will harvest all your fruit and drink the milk from your livestock. And I will turn the city of Rabbah into a pasture for camels. And all the land of the Ammonites into a resting place for sheep and goats. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Again, this phrase that is used more time in the books of Ezekiel than any other book in the Bible. Every single illustration is meant to show whomever God is speaking to that he is God. <clears throat> when was the last time you recognized God as God? God. 
And what point did it take you to get there? Verse 6, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, because you clapped and danced and cheered with glee at the destruction of my people. These are the relatives of Israel. I will raise my fist of judgment against you. I will give you as plunder to many nations. I will cut you off from being a nation and destroy you completely. And again, what does that last phrase say? Read it while I take a drink. Again, that phrase that is used more times in the book of Ezekiel than any other book in the Bible. Why? Because God wants people to know who he is. Does God want a relationship not just with his chosen people, the people of Israel, but even with Gentiles? Yes, he does. Thank God for that, by the way, because, you know, unless you have a drop of, of Israelite blood in you, you are a Gentile. Moab, the younger brother of Ammon, verse 8, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, because the people of Moab have said uh, that Judah is just like all the other nations. I will op open up their eastern flank and wipe out their glorious frontier towns, Beth, Jamoth, Baal, Meon, and Kariathim. <clears throat> and I will hand Moab over to nomads from the desert, uh, eastern deserts, just as I handed over Ammon. Yes, the Ammonites will no longer be counted among the nations. In that way, I will bring my judgments down on the Moabites. And you say, then they will know that I am the Lord. Edom, the twin brother of Jacob, the guy that you know, was the one that was the favorite, you remember him, of Isaac? The, the one that had the red hair that would actually go out and bring back these, these amazing catches, these hunter that he was. <clears throat> this is what the Sovereign Lord says. <clears throat> the people of Edom have sinned greatly by avenging themselves against the people of Judah. Therefore, says the Sovereign Lord, I will raise my fist of judgment against Edom. I will wipe out its people and animals with the sword. I will make a wasteland of everything from Taman to Dalan. And I will accomplish this by the hand of my people of Israel. They will carry out my vengeance with anger, and Edom will know that this vengeance is from me. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. And then Philistia, these people that have been in the thorn and the side of the Israelites even till to this day. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The people of Philistia have acted against Judah out of bitter revenge and long-standing contempt. <clears throat> Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will raise my fist of judgment against the land of the Philistines. I will wipe out the Carathites and utterly destroy the people who live by the sea. <coughs> <clears throat> I will execute terrible vengeance against them to punish them for what they have done. And when I have afflicted my revenge, what does it say? <clears throat> Do you know who the Lord is? Every single paragraph, every single illustration ending with the phrase, then they will know that I am the Lord. Do you know the Lord? Because if you don't, this means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. You see, we have the privilege of celebrating communion tonight. And this is what we do at the beginning of the month, whether it's Sunday or Wednesday night. And I get the privilege of celebrating communion with you, my family, and my friends. As I call the guys forward, <coughs> as I call Cat forward to lead us in worship, ask yourself, do you know the Lord? 
Do I have a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have I experienced his grace? Or have I acted like the people of Israel and refused, refused him? As you hold these elements, keep them in your hand. We're going to um, take it together. This is what I was looking forward to. It's better than a herd of bison walking by your car. Better than watching bears skinny dip. It's the privilege of coming together in a, a ceremony, a, a sacrament, that we know that this isn't the real blood or the real body. It, it's just a, an element but there's something sacred about this.
we learn about the actual implementation of this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. <clears throat> the very last time that Jesus eats a meal with his disciples, they're in the upper room, and as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. He blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. You see, this was not only uh, the last time that Jesus was going to take uh, supper with his friends, those that were closest to him, but this was a, a just a little taste of what it's going to be like there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, not only is this looking back at the time when, when Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with those closest to him, but it looks forward to the time when we too can celebrate with Jesus Christ as the bride, the church, us. And so every single time that we take this, uh, this, this wafer and, and put it in our mouth and, and chew it, it's something as you, um, you know, accustomed to the taste, look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So what does Jesus say there? Take, eat, this is my body and I get to take this with you. Verse 27. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. For this is the blood, my blood of the new covenant. Which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you understand that when Jesus took this cup, he too was looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we take this together. And just as our tradition on Wednesday nights, we do exactly what they did verse 30 it didn't end just with the the you know the the little elements the the bread and and the wine but in verse 30 they did this and when they had sung a hymn they went out to the mount of olives and this last couple of weeks this this hymn has been on my mind I'm just going to read the first verse here for you. It says, all the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy? Who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er befall me. And again, put yourself in the life of Ezekiel, whatever life you have had, the trials, the problems that you have had, no matter what, who has been there the whole time. Who has been there every single step of the way. You see the people of Israel, despite the fact that they were obstinate, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, God was still with them. Even in Babylon. God had still sent his prophets there, despite the fact that they ignored them every single day. God still reached out to them, and God still reaches out to you. Every time we take communion, we get to remember that. That last phrase there, Jesus doeth all things well. Never doubt. Whatever problems come in your life. What is God doing? He's bringing about something that's beautiful. You. In his image. So that you can share it with, some, with someone else. Please stand with me as we sing this hymn. All the way my Savior leads me. 
What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. All the way my Savior leads me, cheers each winding path I tread. And give me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter, and my soul a thirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. Gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. All the way my Savior leads me, oh, the fullness of his love. Perfect rest to me is promised in my Father's house above. When my spirit clothed immortal wings its flight to realms of day, this my song through all the ages, Jesus led me all the way. This my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. And so, Father, I thank you so much that I have the privilege to be here with my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, my family, Lord. Not only to share with them from the book of Ezekiel, but to be able to, to partake of this meal together with them. Just a little taste of what we will get to celebrate for eternity. And look back on all those trials that we've had to face. Maybe even having the privilege of meeting Ezekiel and seeing that our problems pale in significance to people like Ezekiel or even Jeremiah or even Isaiah or Hosea or Micah or Zephaniah or Zechariah, all those prophets of old. And their problems pale in significance to what Jesus Christ did for us. Because all of us there, the saints of old, the saints now, the saints in the future, will just be casting our crowns before you. <clears throat> Knowing that everything we went through was for your glory. That you led us every single step of the way. I ask you bless these my friends. I will ask you bless them abundantly tonight. The problems that they may be going through. Lord, I ask that you show them that you're right there beside them. That you're leading them all the way. Lord, I thank you so much for their patience. They see the vulnerability of the person up here. Lord, I thank you for giving me the strength to make it through the rest of this sermon, Lord. As you use us for your glory, I praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray.